Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 as we continue in our exposition of this wonderful gospel docudrama inspired by the Holy Spirit through Mark. Just a moment, I'm going to begin reading in Mark 6, verse 1, and I will take us through verse 13. But before I do, I just want to remind you that the last time we were together with regard to the Gospel of Mark, which was two weeks ago this morning, we were, as it were, in the mountains of faith, and they were beautiful. We saw a demoniac, amazingly converted, And so transformed that he wanted to be with Jesus for the rest of his life. He wanted to travel with him. And by the way, we saw even the demons exercising a pretty significant faith. Not saving, but real. They said, we know who you are, Jesus, the Son of God. The demons saw what many people refused to see. And then... We saw a pathetic father fall down before Jesus and say, Jesus, please come to my home and lay your hands on my daughter. She's about to die. And he said, I will. But before he could get there, another person with great faith, or at least with adequate faith, came to Jesus, snuck up behind him, because she was firmly persuaded that if she just touched the fringe of his garment, she would be healed And he said to her, Woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And when that father heard the discouraging news just as they were approaching his home, Your daughter's dead. It's too late. Jesus said to him, Don't fear. Keep on believing. Chapter 5. The mountaintop chapter of faith. And now this morning, we must descend into the valley of unbelief. If chapter 5 is about faith, chapter 6 is about unbelief. And it's a very sad chapter. It's very dismal. In fact, we probably should have kept the lights down for this sermon, Pastor Sam. Um, Pastor Sam came to me. I was standing in the back and thinking, it's so dark in here. Um, Not scolding anyone because they've been directed to turn the lights down a little bit so that we can see better. Um, But now we're going to try to just pretty much keep them up like this all the time because it's dark out to begin with. But it, it would have been almost suitable to keep it like that for what I have to talk to you about today. The ugly, discouraging, fearful condition of unbelief. And we're going to be confronted with it. And then, as Jonathan comes, I believe, next Lord's Day and perhaps the one following, he too is going to show us, or at least we're going to become aware of further unbelief. Now, having said that, may I just read for us verses 1 through 13? I'm going to tell you right from the start, this falls into two very natural divisions. Verses 1 through 6a are 
about what Larry said. Jesus going to Nazareth and being rejected. Rejected because of unbelief. And then with verse 6b, we have a change. Jesus leaves Nazareth. He goes to villages surrounding where people are interested in hearing the gospel of the kingdom. And then he gathers his twelve whom he had already collected, and he commissions them and sends them out with great power and authority, and they are used by God through the empowerment of the Lord Jesus Christ to extend the kingdom. And that's why the title of the sermon, as you may have noticed on the bulletin, is Prophet Rejected, Kingdom Extended. And I do think it's worth pointing out before I read that in this particular passage, Jesus himself calls himself a prophet. Would you notice, I'm jumping ahead to verse 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. He takes to himself the term prophet. And I've said to you before that the word Messiah means the anointed one. And Christ was anointed to fulfill all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Those were the offices of the Old Testament. Christ came to be the consummate prophet, the consummate priest, the consummate king. And even in this gospel, he's already presented himself as the king. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Watch me. And you will also see who the king is. And he exercised dominion and authority in several spheres, asserting his kingship. But we also see the Lord Jesus functioning as a priest. Because... You remember in the case of the paralytic let down, he raises the question, what do you think is the hardest thing to do to forgive someone's sins or to tell a paralytic stand up? And basically he was saying, uh, you have to be God to do either of those things. So let me just show you that I am God. And in this particular case, I am going to pronounce forgiveness of sins. That's a priestly function. And later, to the, with regard to the woman that I've already mentioned, what did he say to her? He said, when only a priest is allowed to say, woman, you may go in peace. Not anybody can tell someone to go in peace. Our Savior was a king, is a king. Our Savior was a priest, is a priest. Our Savior was a prophet, is a prophet. And all through eternity, he will carry out his prophetic ministry in opening up to us and disclosing to us the great things of God. It'll be a seminary from which you never graduate and would never want to graduate because it's more and more and more and more about our triune God. So in this passage, we have a prophet rejected. And I just want to start reading, and I'm going to make some comments along the way and just sort of dispatch several minor observations so that I can come to the main point of verses 1 through 6a. Okay? Here we go. He went away from there, that would be Capernaum, and came to his hometown, that would be Nazareth. Remember, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, headquartered in Capernaum. Can you remember that? Born in Bethlehem, everybody knows that. Raised in Nazareth for 30 years headquartered for the most part in Capernaum. He goes to his hometown, Nazareth. It's not identified in this text, but it's clear from the parallel passages. And his disciples followed him. Remember, when we last saw Jesus, only three were with him in that bedroom where the little girl was raised from the dead. But now they're all with him. They're in training. They're being prepared for a ministry 
which we will even get to in our text. So they're with him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And I want to say three things about that, just in passing. Number one, our Lord had a high view of the Sabbath. He observed it. It was the old Sabbath, which met on the seventh day of the week. He also had a high view of the means of grace. If you will, he had a high view of going to church. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he had a high view of the Word of God. And there he was given the Scriptures to read. Perhaps Luke 4 is right. Perhaps, I mean, Luke 4 is right. Perhaps it was the passage Luke 4 speaks about, Isaiah 61. Not sure about that. But our Lord believed in observing the Sabbath. We have the best of all reasons to observe the Sabbath because He has raised from the dead and done something greater than creation. He's brought about the new creation. And He had a high view of the means of grace. And it is true, probably in Nazareth, He wouldn't draw the crowds that He drew elsewhere. And in one sense, probably it was wise for Him to enter the Sabbath because there He would for sure have a hearing. But He always went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He was raised in this city. He sat in that synagogue perhaps hundreds of times over His 30 years of life. They knew who He was. And now suddenly this hometown boy, and I don't speak irreverently, is standing up and he's teaching in the Sabbath. Now, I want to point out one more thing in passing. Teaching was Jesus' primary ministry, teaching and preaching. I've said that before, but I want to say it again. His primary ministry was not doing miracles. Miracles were subsidiary. They were designed, yes, to demonstrate that he was indeed the promised Messiah. They were not created, they were not utilized primarily to create faith. They were a credential. But our Lord went in there to teach the Word of God, and I'm just not going to take time, it's so tempting, but I can't do it because we took a little longer in our service this morning for the best of reasons, and I'm going to take a little shorter. But I went through this week... All of the sections so far, just so far, and we're only in chapter 6, where we are told that Jesus was teaching and preaching. And I'm just going to say, chapter 1, verse 14, verse 21, verse 39, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 33, and here in chapter 6, verse 2, and in verse 6. Jesus was primarily a preacher and a teacher. And he preached the kingdom of God, and he told people, turn from your sins and believe upon the Savior. And that's what he was doing on this occasion. He was teaching, he was handling the Word of God. Now, just very quickly, where was this taking place? You already know the answer, in Nazareth, his hometown, where he had lived some 30 years. And could I just point out that for 30 years Jesus lived sinlessly in Nazareth? This is a relatively small village. When you live in a small community, you get to know people for their character, and one's reputation begins to emerge. What kind of a reputation? What did people, what must they have thought about Jesus? 
They certainly didn't believe He was the Son of God. They certainly weren't about to trust Him as their Savior. They certainly didn't understand any of that. That's very obvious from today's passage. But one thing they probably knew, He was exceptional. Can you imagine somebody growing up and spending 30 years in your community and they never ever did anything that was wrong? He lived a sinlessly perfect life in Nazareth for 30 years. And one would think that if he came back to his hometown, especially with the reputation that was going all over Galilee, this man, great crowds are coming to hear him. So many people that he has to get in a boat in order to teach them. People are being healed by just touching him. He's doing stupendous things. And he's coming back home to our town. They had no interest in his message. And even though verse 2 tells us many who heard him were astonished, I just want to say don't get too excited about that. Wow, this is good. They're astonished. Look what they're saying. Yeah, look what they're saying. And hear, hear perhaps a different tone in what they're saying. Where did, he, where did this man get these things? Where did he get this? We saw him. He never went off to Cambridge. He never went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Where did he get these things? And the next question, there are five. What is the wisdom given to him? It's obvious it doesn't come from him. It's coming from somebody. Somebody just telling him what to say so that he comes off really wise? Where did he get this stuff? Question number three. How are such mighty works done by His hands? Now, would you notice that they do not doubt that He has wisdom or that He's speaking wisdom. They may wonder where it came from, but they do not deny that He is speaking wisdom. And they do not deny that He is doing stupendous, supernatural, miraculous things. They say, how are such mighty works done by His hands? Why do I emphasize that? Because it shows you how stubborn and willful and defiant their unbelief was. They knew He had this wisdom. They knew He was doing these miracles. But their questions are disdainful. Their questions have an attitude. Where did He get this stuff? And then they say in verse 3, is, is not this the carpenter? Not just the carpenter's son. He's a carpenter. I thought of that when Pastor Keith spoke of Ron. In addition to all these other things, he's a carpenter. And a carpenter was not considered a disdainful trade in those days. They didn't have high-tech vocations. That was a good vocation. But it wasn't a lucrative vocation. He was a carpenter. Probably worked with his father for most of those 30 years as a carpenter. And they're saying... Isn't this the carpenter? The, the carpenter. Not the theologian, not the miracle worker. The carpenter. The son of Mary. What about, hey, why didn't you say the son of Joseph? Well, we're not too sure about Joseph. In fact, we're not too sure about Mary. Some of you adults may know what I mean when I say this. The question is sometimes asked in this way. Mommy's baby... Daddy's maybe. We know 
that he was born of Mary. We don't really know how that happened because we're not prepared to believe that the Holy Spirit descended upon her and caused her to conceive supernaturally in her womb. She's not even given the credit of being called the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary. And we know who his brothers and sisters are and their name for us in verse 4. Four brothers. We don't know the names of his sisters. And now notice how verse 3, excuse me, verse 3, that's where they're named. Now notice the way verse 3 ends. And they took offense at him. Okay, will you put these two things together? In verse 2 it says, Many who heard him were astonished. And they took offense at him. Their astonishment was not deep humility and love and hunger for his gospel about the kingdom. They were just admitting to say, this is, he's, he's, a, he's a mystery to us. It's amazing. I, I can't deny that he speaks with a wisdom that I have no idea where he got. I can't deny that he has done supernatural things. I just question where he got that wisdom and where he got that ability. I personally take offense with him. And we have to wrestle with the question, why? And I'm going to answer that. Well... Look what Jesus says. It says in verse 5, well, actually I should read verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his, own, in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. Real prophets are viewed with honor everywhere except in their hometown and among their relatives. And notice verse 5, and I will be camping on this in just a few moments. It says, And he could do no mighty work there. I would encourage you to circle or underline the word could because it's a puzzling word and it's even a challenging word. Because we have to sooner or later say, what in the world can that mean? He could. And then we find that he did a few miracles upon a few sick people. And verse 6, part A says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Two times in the Gospels, only two times in the Gospels, do we read about Jesus marveling. If you want to write the other one down, I think it's worth contrasting. It happens to Matthew 8.10. It's where the centurion needed his son to be saved. And he comes to Jesus, unlike Jairus, and says, Jesus, you don't have to come to my house to rescue my son I know what authority is about, and I know you have authority. If you just speak the word, even though he's miles from here, my son will be saved. And the Bible tells us Jesus marveled at his faith. Now, a real strong hyper-Calvinist would just say something like, well, that was decreed, so no big deal. But Jesus never loses his humanity and he looks at that centurion and looks at and listens to his petition and he says, This is amazing. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. I don't see that kind of faith in Israel. I marvel at that kind of faith. And the only other place in the whole New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus is said to marvel is here. He marvels at two things, dear people. He marvels at faith and he marvels at unbelief. He looked at this, and that's what the text says. He marveled because of their unbelief. So why did they reject him? 
Why did they ask all these questions? Fundamentally because they were unbelievers. That was the fundamental problem. Unbelief. But then you have to say, is there a deeper explanation for their unbelief? And I think there is. And I'll tell you what it is. It's pride. It's pride. It's pride and prejudice. Didn't you hear their questions? How can he have this? He grew up in our town. He was our friend. He's no better than I am. Who does he think he is? All he was was a carpenter. We're not even sure about his father. We've, we've known him his whole life. There's something deeply rooted in the heart of sinful man that causes him to uh, be troubled about peers rising higher than us. I don't like that. There's an interesting phenomenon, though. There's also some pride in us that makes us worship a hometown hero. We're, we're either worshiping a hometown hero or we're mad at a hometown hero. And in both cases, it's rooted in pride and it's rooted in prejudice. And so that's why they rejected him. And what was the cost? At what cost did they reject him? Notice verse 5 again. It says, And he could do no mighty work there. Matthew's parallel account says, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He didn't do works there because of their unbelief. And here, the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to say he could not do many mighty works there. So the cost was extremely serious. How costly is it to be unbelieving? And again, I'm coming back to this in just a moment, but I, I can't help but put this on your mind right now. How costly is it? Well, no mighty works were done in Nazareth. Hardly any healing. Did you notice the end of uh, verse 5? Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. How come he didn't lay his hands on multitudes? How come multitudes of people weren't healed in Nazareth? You already know the answer. Did multitudes throng about him, and even with a, not a saving faith, but a, a, a persuasion that he could heal them? And mind you, the vast majority of the people who've been flocking around Jesus in our study of Mark's Gospel so far didn't have saving faith. They had what we sometimes call miraculous faith, that is, faith that he could perform a miracle. But at least it was enough faith that he would honor it. Here they don't even have that. Was Nazareth the better off for its unbelief? Nazareth could have become a fairly healthy village if they had believed and trusted in Him. So, unbelief is very costly. No mighty works done there. No healing. No Real faith given birth to because of the miracles done. No forgiveness of sins, or at least very little. And only further hardening of their hearts. <clears throat> Larry told you this morning, it's debatable whether or not Luke chapter 4 is talking about the same incident. But in either case, Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus, was a town that we would have to characterize as guilty of unbelief. 
They tried to kill Jesus in chapter 4 of Luke. And here, all they do is raise questions of doubt about his credibility. And therefore, he didn't do many miracles there. Okay, now I want to point out one huge lesson and move on. I've, I've pointed out several small things and just passing on. What is the big, 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 big lesson in verses 1 through 6? This is what I think it is. And I've hinted all around it, but I'm just going to state it now. The huge lesson is this. It is the dangerous, depriving power of unbelief. Unbelief is dangerously depriving in its power. Now, does that make sense to you? It means that if, if we are characterized by unbelief, that unbelief is very dangerous because what it ends up doing is depriving us, taking away from us the great blessing that could otherwise become ours. Nazareth was not better off for its unbelief. It was worse off. They were deprived of gracious works that Jesus could and would have done, and which thereby may have been the occasion of their true conversion. He didn't do many mighty works there. It's a dangerously depriving thing to be characterized by unbelief. In that sense, we may say that familiarity truly does breed contempt. It breeds contempt. These people, they had this paradigm. They said, no, no, we've known him. We know who he is. He's the carpenter. We know his brothers. He grew up here. He can't be anyone special. He's an ordinary human being. Did you know that it's possible to live too near a person in order to see him? One commentator said, these fellow villagers of Jesus in Nazareth knew him too well to know him well enough. They knew him too well. See, they just said, well, he's, he's an ordinary person. He couldn't be. He couldn't be the Son of God. The demons know he is. <laughs> We're not prepared to believe that. And so they take their presupposition. He's an ordinary man. He couldn't be extraordinary. And they, they interpret everything that he says and everything he does through that paradigm, through that, that, those glasses, and say, well, whatever, whatever, he's not the Son of God. He, he is the Son of Mary somehow, but he isn't the Son of God. And because of that dangerous unbelief, the city of Nazareth was terribly, terribly deprived of the gracious blessings of the Messiah. Now let me just comment for a moment, because maybe, is it a problem to you? Is it a theological, is verse 5 a theological problem to you? Better be. If it, is, if it isn't, you're not even thinking. Doesn't that word could bother you? He could? Which is another way of saying he couldn't. He couldn't do any miracles there. Wait a minute. Who are we talking about? Son of God. The one who can look at a demon, a demon-possessed man, and stop him in his tracks and command the demons to leave him. All the stuff we've seen those. 
And now we read he he couldn't he couldn't do many mighty works there. What does this mean? Well, let me try to simply solve the problem. It doesn't mean that he absolutely couldn't. It doesn't mean that he lost the power to actually do that. He had the power to do that in himself. He is God. And he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. What this means is that under these circumstances, in his holiness and in his justice, he evaluated the situation and there was that within his moral being and soul that said, No! I will not bless these people for their unbelief. So in one sense, he could. In and of himself, he can do anything. His power is limitless. But in terms of what he chooses to do with that power, there are limits. And they're rooted in his character. It's a little bit like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. You know what he said. He wept over Jerusalem. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks? And what are the next words? But you would not. You would not. Are you troubled with that? Does that mean that the will of man is more powerful than the will of God? No. It means that in God's holiness and justice there are times that He looks at willful, stubborn unbelief and says, I will punish that by leaving them to themselves. Now we have to understand something about unbelief. Unbelief is not a mental problem. Unbelief is not an evidence problem. It's not that these poor Nazarite people just didn't see enough evidence or hear enough good things. No, they had the evidence. They were persuaded. But in their hearts they were stubborn and they were obstinate and they were willful and they were determined not to believe upon Him, not to trust Him. Unbelief is essentially a moral problem. And I want to point that out to any of you who have not yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't understand anything about the Gospel, it might be an intellectual problem. I do understand that. The Gospel needs to be understood. We are sinners. We willfully violate the will of God as revealed in the Scriptures. And that's what sin is, the transgression of God's law. And God is holy, and God is just, and He must punish us. He must punish us. He has no alternative. He must punish us as surely as He must tell the truth. As soon as God can tell lies, He can quit being just. He'll never start telling lies. He'll never quit being just. His justice requires that our sins be punished. And so God either has to send us to hell or find a substitute. And he sends the Lord Jesus Christ to live that perfect life and to be that substitute and to take that wrath and to earn a perfect righteousness that could be put to our account. And the promise of the good news is that the moment you, out of a broken heartedness for your sin, look to Jesus, the Lamb of God, and say, Jesus, please take my sin. Please bear the penalty of my sin. Please be my substitute. The second you look to him, he takes your sins, they're punished in Him, He gives you His righteousness. You have to understand that. I understand that. I understand that you have to understand that. But at the end of the day, when you understand that, and this church is filled with young people that are so gospel-saturated, you understand that too well. You know what your problem is? It isn't that you haven't seen enough miracles. 
Your problem is you wouldn't believe if you did see a miracle. Your unbelief is willful, determined, stubborn, defiant rejection of Jesus Christ because you love your sins. And you'd rather perish for all eternity or at least take your chances in perishing for all eternity than to humble yourself and flee to the Lamb of God. Unbelief is not a mental problem. It's a moral problem. And because it's a moral problem, Jesus looks at these people and says, Not here. No, no, no. I'm not going to. I could do it. He says, if you, wanna, if you really doubt that, come with me. Watch. I'm going to lay my hands on a few people and I'm going to make them well. Well, what do you think of that? Does that prove I could do it? No. But what I want to say, dear people, is, and here's where it comes home to us, I think. Unbelief is a dangerously depriving sin, even for us. It's not just dangerously depriving to you who are lost. And, and, and I hope I made the point. Now, if you haven't come to Jesus yet, um, <clears throat> He will leave Nazareth. And you know what? He probably never went back to Nazareth. And you know what? He may leave you. And He may never, ever come back. And it won't be because he couldn't. It's because he wouldn't. His couldn't is rooted in his wouldn't. And his wouldn't is rooted in his holiness and justice. And if you're going to mess around with grace like that, the day will come, it will come, when Jesus will say, Fellas, let's go. I'm done with Nazareth. I'm done with heritage. I'm done with that guy. I'm done with that girl. They refuse to believe. Okay, that's all true. But I want to say something to those of us who are believers. I'm going to say to you that even in our lives, unbelief is a dangerously prohibitive sin. I'm saying to you, if I may put it positively, that if we had more faith in our triune God and in our Savior, we would have more blessing. We would experience more wonder from God. I can't take time to develop that as fully as I would like to. But the Bible clearly teaches that there are degrees of faith. If I had time, I would take you to Matthew and show you that when Jesus and his three disciples came down from the mountain, they found the situation where the disciples were trying to cast demons out of a man and they couldn't. And they said, why can't we do this? And Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. And then he says this. He said, listen. He says, because your faith is too little. He didn't say because you have no faith. He said because your faith is too little. You mean, Jesus, that my degree of faith could actually have a bearing on what I could do for your glory? Oh, yes. And if you read Christian biography, you will find a verification of that principle. Faith is a wonderful grace. And the more of it we have, the more blessing we enjoy from God and the greater things we can do for God. That's a principle. 
And I think we should pray that God will give us more faith and that God will help us. Unbelief is just a horrible thing. This is what J.C. Ryle said. You always have to go back to Ryle and just read his beautiful overviews about um, any passage that you read in the four Gospels. We can never be too much on guard against unbelief. It is the oldest sin in the world. It began in the Garden of Eden when Eve listened to the devil's promises instead of believing God's word, you shall die. It is the most ruinous of all sins and its consequences. It brought death into the world. It kept Israel for 40 years out of Canaan. It is the sin which specially fills hell. He that believeth not shall be damned. It is the most foolish and inconsistent of all sins. It makes a man refuse the plainest evidence, shut his eyes against the clearest testimony, and yet believe lies. Worst of all, it is the commonest sin in the world. Thousands are guilty of it on every side, in every profession. They know nothing of true faith, but in practice they are really unbelievers. Unbelief is horrible. And what we have to do is we have to say with that man that we're going to come to a little later in this gospel, we say, Lord, I believe. I do believe. You all know what he said after he said that. He asked God for something. He said, I believe. Help thou, help. Would you please help me with my unbelief? And what does that mean, help my unbelief? It means help me get rid of it. It means help me kill it. It means help me replace it. It means help me crucify it. So there, and as we deal with unbelief in our lives, and as it were, kill that unbelief, faith thrives and prospers. And we are the blessed for it. So that's the main, that's the huge lesson. Okay, now I've got to really hurry, and I want to just um, <clears throat> draw your attention. By the way, what, what we could say, and may, may I just say this before I completely leave this, when these people looked at Jesus, because of their pride and because of their prejudice, they refused to entertained the possibility that he was more than a mere man. And I could put it like this. Actually, for them, the flesh of Jesus veiled his deity entirely. And it made me think this week of the great Christmas hymn that we sing. Wesley wrote it, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Did you know that in verse 2 we sing... Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. And I ask you this question. If you were living in Nazareth, being who you are right now, right now, would you have realized that behind that flesh there was the Godhead? That in that flesh, incarnate, would you have in would you have hailed incarnate deity? We do. We who are Christians, we know that Jesus was not a mere man. Okay, the kingdom extended. Uh, let me rush through this, and yet I hope do some justice to it. In verse six b, it says, "And he went about among the villages." Teaching. Oh yes, that's his main occupation. He's a preacher and he's a teacher. So what happens when Jesus justly leaves a stubborn, obstinate, unbelieving person or community? He goes elsewhere. 
He goes elsewhere. Because the kingdom has to advance. He's not going to quit. And so he goes among villages. And the implication is that the villages received him. We read nothing of them rejecting him. It's Nazareth that rejects him. So he, he's extending his kingdom. He continues his teaching. And that's what we must do whenever we witness to somebody and they just utterly reject us. Say, will you quit talking to me about the gospel? I'm sick of this. I don't want to hear this anymore from you. Or something of the like. What do you do? You go to the next person. And you go to the next person. And you go to the next person. And you go to the next person. Because as we do that, God will bless us. And eventually we'll be finding people that say, Would you tell me more? I want to hear this good news. So, he continued teaching. But what I really want you to see is that he commissioned his twelve. And that's what we find in verses 7 through 12. Let me just read that quickly. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, then they will not listen and they will not listen to you when you leave shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them so what they do so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them you know what's happening? The kingdom is being extended. The prophet was rejected, but the kingdom continues to advance. Now let me just say a few things in passing about this and then come to one main lesson. You notice in verse 7 he called the twelve. We've already, we already know who the twelve are back in chapter 3. I think it's around verse 15. He gathered them together. But now... Oh, by the way, I think I will read this. This is what it says. He went up into the mountain. He called those whom he had desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve. Listen, so that they might be with him. That's what discipleship was going to mean for a while. They needed to be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons, but not yet. And now we come to the not yet. Now it's time. Now it's time for the, the students who had uh, been working on their degree in education to do their student teaching. He's going to send them out. He said, they're not ready. Of course they're not ready. Not entirely. You're never entirely ready. But he sends them out. He begins to send them out. This isn't the final time. And if we read the parallel account in Matthew, we find that he says, I want you to only go to the household, to the lost children of the household of Israel. Don't go to any Gentiles. Don't go to... Don't go to any Gentiles. This is just for the Jews right now. And he sends them out and he gives them this authority. Now, why did he choose 12? You should already know the answer to that. He's building the new Israel. You'll have to read Revelation 21, verses 12 and 14, and look at the foundation of the city again in the doors. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. You have to remember what Jesus said to them. He said, in the renewed earth, you shall reign over the twelve tribes. There is one 
new Israel, which includes the elect of the old Israel, with all of the elect in the Gentile world, and he chooses twelve purposely. There is significance. This is the new Israel. And he sends them out two by two. I can't go into much on that. You know from Ecclesiastes that two are better than one for many practical reasons. We need someone. We need someone to say, you're, you're, don't do that. That's wrong. That's not smart. Don't do that. We need somebody to say, I think, you're, I think you're sinning there. Thank you. I needed that. We need to because when I'm standing there and, and, and I might get my head cut off for what I'm preaching, i got a brother that says, preach on, brother. We need to. It's a biblical principle. For a witness to be valid, there need to be two. There are all kinds of biblical reasons. Jesus sends these twelve out in six pairs, two by two by two. It's a good principle. It's a principle that ought to find modern application. When we plant churches, if at all possible, we should if if at all possible, we should start with two pastors. Can't always do that. But the principle of two is a very biblical principle, and so Jesus sends them out. And what does he tell them to do? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to preach repentance. We know that from what it says they did. I want you to expel demons, and I want you to heal the sick, and I'm going to give you authority to do it. Now, this is really amazing. It's one thing for a man to have miracle-working power. It's another thing for a man to be able to give miracle-working power to someone else. In one sense, it's even greater. His power is so great that he can give it to twelve. And you know what? When they went out, they did do the very thing he empowered them to do. They come back and tell them. It's unbelievable. We commanded demons to leave people and they left. We laid our hands on sick people and they were made well. And if you read the parallel account in I think it's Matthew chapter 10, Jesus actually says, I want you to Cast out demons. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to raise the dead. We don't have a record uh, of... Well, we, we do in some regards, perhaps. Th- this, is, this is the authority and the power of God given to His disciples. And so they go out. But the main thing is preaching repentance and preaching faith and preaching the kingdom and using the miracle working power as a subsidiary evidence that this message has authority. And so they did that. But isn't it interesting that he tells them there's some things that I don't want you to do it has to do with your provisions. I don't want you I want you to travel lightly. That's what I want you to do. I want you to travel lightly. And I need to preach lightly. Okay. So I was going to be candid with you. 46 minutes and 47 minutes. Quitting at 50. Sorry. He says, you don't need money. You don't need bread. You don't need a suitcase. All you need is your walking stick, the tunic you have on, and the sandals. Trust God to provide for you. Later, he says, did you lack anything when I sent you out with nothing? They said, nothing. Trust me, I will take care of you. And so, in our Christian mission, there are risks that we have to be willing to take. Ron and Suvana are considering those risks. Dwayne Baldwin and Kimberly are considering those risks. Justin and Rebecca are considering those risks. 
to be careful. It's my son-in-law and daughter. They bought the house in the hood, in the inner city. They've already bought it. They want to live in the center. They want to love those people and invite them to their home. There are risks. Believe me, as a father and my dear wife, as a mother, you think we don't think about that? But there are risks. One of the risks is none of us are ever fully prepared. I mean, again, I said a minute ago, are those disciples really ready? Well, in one sense they are, in another sense they're not, but they're never going to really get ready until they go. And then they come back and they're more trained, and and eventually Jesus says, okay, now I want you to go worldwide. So, the kingdom of God, this is the huge lesson, is invincible. That's what I want you to take away from this message. Jesus is rejected. Very sad, isn't it? Is the kingdom not going to advance now? Oh, of course it is. Watch him. He's going to villages. He empowers his disciples. They go out in his name. They preach. And by the way, he says, you're going to meet with resistance so that when it comes, this is how you handle it. Don't be taking advantage of your hospitality. It may not be as, you know, Peter and James may be living in a nicer home than the others, but don't worry about that. Just stay where you're Stay where you're taking care of. But if people don't receive you, literally take off your sandals and clap them together in their presence and say, see the dust falling? It's a testimony against you. You have rejected not only the Word of God, but the God of the Word. It's a very dangerous thing. But the kingdom advances, dear people, and we are a part of it. And it may seem dismal to us and our little pea-shooting gifts trying to witness and trying to advance it and so forth, but it's going, it's moving, it's conquering, and it's going to conquer every kingdom of man. One day, the kingdoms of our Lord shall become the kingdoms of our God and Savior. The kingdoms of this world, excuse me, shall become the kingdom of our God and our Savior, and we're a part of it. And I hope that those of you who heard the gospel earlier and are converted will want to become a part of it, and that you will call upon the Lord Jesus Christ And trust Him as your Savior today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for uh, this portion of Mark. There's so much in it. We we feel, um, in a sense, frustrated and discouraged that, that there's so much more. But we thank You that every person, thinking person in this sanctuary can go back to Mark 6 verses 1 through 13 and read and pray and think and meditate and mine more gold. And so we pray that you will bless us. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bless faith. And we ask that you would increase our faith and bless us more. We thank you that your kingdom is advancing and we pray that we too will be a part of it and that we will be willing to take our risks and travel lightly in this world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.